Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. When I came to, I had incredible trouble hearing because my eardrums had been blown out from the, the blast and I had this um, American doctor came in and um, without any any warning he, he started telling me about what what I had to be careful of and he, and he was saying how 
when suicide bombs, they in the bombs, they often put feces and things like that so that if it doesn't kill you, you'll get an infection. The kids that they use have often been sexually assaulted, so quite often they've got HIV. And going going through this and saying, so you won't be able to hug, kiss or do anything to any of your family until you're cleared. You know, not, I don't even, at this stage I didn't even know I'd been blown up by a suicide bomber, you know. A child. The Australian Federal Police, or the AFP, was established in the wake of the 1978 bombing of the Hilton Hotel in Sydney. Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser and 11 other heads of state were staying in the hotel at the time for the Commonwealth Heads of State meeting, also known as Chogham. The bomb planted in a bin outside the hotel, was detonated when two council garbage collectors attempted to empty it. They were killed instantly, as was a member of New South Wales Police. Eleven other people were injured, including the two men driving the garbage truck and several other police members. This unprecedented terrorist attack on Australian soil was the motivation the government needed to greenlight a single federal law enforcement agency. We've mentioned the AFP many times on Australian True Crime, But do any of us really know what they do? Our guest today, who reached the very top of the tree in the organisation, may change the way you think about the role of the Australian Federal Police. For one thing, his brilliant career was brought to a grinding halt when he was supposed to be protected by a bunch of Americans on a dusty road in Afghanistan. David Savage is now the president of the Australian Federal Police Former Members Association, and he's particularly passionate about securing better mental health support both for serving members and for retired members. I have a feeling that by the time you get to the end of this episode, you'll understand why. I caught up with David recently, and we started our conversation by talking about his deployment in East Timor in 1999. He was sent there by our government during what is now known as the East Timorese Crisis. During that period, the tiny community was preparing to vote on the question of independence from Indonesia. So I was there with the what they called the UNAMET mission, which was from June uh, up until Interfet arrived, which was um, the 20th of September. So we were we were there in the period to help the the UN run the what they called the popular consultation or the election to allow the Timorese people to decide whether they wanted to stay with the the occupiers, the Indonesians, or whether they wanted to reject that and ultimately gain independence. There was 52 Australian police and eight or 10 Australian military observers, so so about 60 Australians. We were all unarmed. We, we didn't have any ballistic equipment. But also because of the agreements, what they called the May 5th agreement, there was no peacekeepers ready to come in to back us up or whatever. So we, we had no one there to protect us and we were our job was to advise the Indonesian police on security, which was essentially trying to cajole them to to actually act and, and protect the civilian population. And at the same time, the Indonesian military had created these militias and they were attacking the independence people. So it was a very, very violent um, situation. So so we were the, you know, we were the only thin blue line for one of and just using our, our, our presence, our negotiation skills, and often our bodies to try and protect people. But, you know, they were, especially 
as it got close to the the vote, the Indonesians realised that we, they had tried to get us to to leave, to that it would would attack us and and attack uh, civilians. And um, because for 24 years they'd been able to inter- intimidate the Timorese population, they thought they could do the same to us. However, we refused to leave. Well, also because Australia as a nation had really left them to it. Absolutely. And so, I mean, were you shocked at the at the level of violence and the level of aggression that you even witnessed, let alone was directed at you? Look, I, I was. I, you know, I'd, I'd seen tiny little bits on over, other overseas things, but not, nothing on the scale of, of this. We had such, and we still do, have such a close diplomatic relationship. I was shocked, frankly, that the troops would be allowed to carry out that sort of violence, even in front of observers. Well, what they tried to do was to to use these militias as proxies. So, so it didn't look like it was the Indonesians, but but a lot of these militias were actually Indonesian soldiers dressed up with wigs and wearing clothing, so that they appeared to be these militias. And using Indonesian army issued guns. Absolutely, and you know you'd you'd see them. They'd have t-shirts on for you know pro autonomy, pro independence and stuff. But you look down and they had their their military. Uh, pants and military boots on, and as it got closer to the vote and after it, they'd be then carrying their their military rifles, automatic rifles, you know. So look, it was we kept getting information that that was what was planned. That if the vote took place and in, if Indonesia was rejected, that they had a what they call a scorched earth policy, that they were going to um, destroy everything that Indonesia had ever put in there, and you know they had all this rhetoric, you know the blood would flow through the streets and this but what they actually talked about doing i don't think any of us could actually envisage that it was possible to do the scale of what they they were threatening it almost was you know you know it was 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 ridiculous how how can you destroy a country when the world's looking on you know you've got the united nations there we're a couple of hundred kilometers from australia but Literally, once the vote happened and, and had a massive turnout, 98 or 99% of the population turned out, and out of that, almost 80% voted to reject Indonesia. Literally, the attacks and the town where I was, which is very close to the border with West Timor, was the first one attacked. And, you know, we had a whole pile of our Timorese locally engaged UN staff were massacred straight away. And then the, the, the town was just burning the whole, you know, we're trying to get our local staff, trying to bring them into, but we also had about 50 or 60 international UN staff that we had to try and consolidate into one place. And, you know, they'd started, you know, machine gunning our the, our house. And when you don't know what's in their mind <laughs> when, when you're laying on the floor in the middle of the night and, the, you know, the whole town's ablaze and, um, you know, we're being shot at and, yeah, so the, the, the next morning we had to um, go and, and collect everybody that we could. Um, but the whole, you know, at the police, the Indonesian police station, there were several hundred Indonesian police just standing there watching as these militias were going and burning, burning the town, destroying everything. Actually, at that police station, about six days afterwards, there was one of the largest massacres there of pro-independent supporters. A lot of people had been encouraged to go there to uh, for protection, and they'd got they'd gotten there, but in fact it was a trap, and the 
the Indonesian police surrounded the police station so they couldn't escape and then the Indonesian military led these militias in and they had a list of pro-independence people and they, they uh, massacred them there, then and there. So we ended up eventually being being evacuated after a siege in, in the UN compound in Dili for about a week and then the military, Australian military then evacuated us. But we still had to get from the UN compound in Dili back to the airport, which was about 10 kilometres, and we had to make our own way. And even though we were leaving, they still, sh- you know, shot at the UN vehicles and, and that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a story that's very well known because... For most Australians, the story started with the interfet intervention with General Cosgrove and that going in. But actually, in fact, 99% of the murders and the destruction of the country actually happened before interfet came in. It happened while we were while we were there. All of us were, you know, incredibly traumatised. We'd literally seen people in front of us being hacked to death. We we thought we were going to be murdered. We thought, you know, it was beyond comprehension. And things were put in place. When we got out in Darwin, people came around and said, you know, it was terrible, blah, blah, blah. And then we never heard another thing. I, I went back to work and asked for two weeks off. And my boss said, why, you've just had a, a holiday in, in the South Pacific. The Austrian police officer who was my partner there, who by fluke, we had worked in Mozambique together prior to that, so we were good mates and we'd gone into all these horrendous situations trying to save people. And he went home, signed his gun out and blew his brains out. And he just couldn't live with what he'd seen. And even after that happened to him, no one asked if I was okay. And now, you know, 20-odd years later, we've still not had any support, even though we've contacted the AFP and uh, and said there's, there's groups of us that are doing it tough. There's no Department of Veterans Affairs for police. So once you, you leave, you know, that's it. And that's part of the reason we've got this Veterans Association so we can try and start building support. Mental health is something that in, in, in policing, has never really been addressed. You know, soldiers might go go to war for six months of their career or whatever. But one of the things about policing is you you live in your battlefield, so to speak. So, you know, you might go to a critical incident, whether it's a, a fatal car accident or a sexual assault of a child or whatever, and you might have to drive past that location constantly or or whatever but you're reminded you know and i know people who've been out of the police for 20 30 years will say i can't drive that way because if i go past x spot it reminds me i get flashbacks and i whatever but the problem was in the past no no one was gain to to you know it's a very macho alpha male thing you know i joined at 18 in the early 80s no one would ever say oh, that affected me or, or I'm not travelling so well or, or whatever. You know, I, I remember going to the suicide of a colleague who I'd, I came on afternoon shift. He was on day shift. We had a chat, thought he was going home, and he went went to kill himself. Fifteen minutes later, I'm at, at where, he, where he took his life and dealing with that. There was, oh, geez, we better go and have a few beers, but there was never any any counselling or never any 
follow up and no one would put the hand up because, oh, you're not up to it. You would have, I suppose, been back on shift the next day. Oh, I worked, I worked, you know, I worked the whole night and then had a couple of hours sleep back on. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But you ended up working at the pointy end of international policing for your entire career. I mean, you never took a less stressful job, if you could help it. You worked in counter-terrorism, in war crimes, and in investigating people smuggling. Yeah, so I, I, I worked in East Timor was the first place. Then I went to, um, to Miami. I was working on a human trafficking project there for, for a while in Miami, Burma, and... Um, it became very clear to me, I'm a bit of a cynic, fun, funnily enough, um, that there was no there was no political will, and the, part of the problem was that um, you know you have to have control of or have um, ends with the, those controlling the borders to be able to undertake human trafficking, and the the same police that we were supposed to train and do this were the ones that were unfortunately facilitating the human trafficking and there was no 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 political will from the um Myanmar police or government to do anything whether it was drugs they they'd give up a few you know the senior military would would run with these um warlords up up in the golden triangle they they would run the whole um narcotics industry and things and every now and then they would give up somebody and it was usually someone who wasn't paying enough bribe to someone else. They'd, they'd make a sacrifice. And you knew that the way what the military was doing in the rest of the country, cracking down on, on the different ethnic groups and things. So after a while, I, I realised that I was wasting my time there. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's just down to pure economics? In, in, in Burma, the corruption there and the influence of China you know, from Mandalay North, everything was Chinese. So the Chinese would come down, they would just pillage all the, the forests, all the timber, all the jade mines, all the natural resources were being just, the whole place being ravaged. We, you know, no, no kind of, you know, we'll take this tree and leave three others or plant, you know, they just just cut everything down. And an incredibly beautiful country with incredible natural resources, but in the hands of the military and in the hands of, of corrupt officials. So there certainly was, if there was a rule of law and, um, you know, the, the country could have been successful, but with the, the military dictatorship, it was never going to, to happen. So how do you communicate that as your job? I'm assuming you've got KPIs. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm, I'm... So what do you communicate back to your superiors? You just, you realise, oh, okay, this, is, this isn't happening. Is that what you tell your boss? You just go, mate. I'm not one of those people that can sit there and put a, a rosy glow on something, you know. Um, but it's good that you're listened to, you know. It's good that you're in a position where you can say that, I guess. Well, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. but what, what, what I, I decided after a while was, um, you know, of, of saying, putting, putting in reports saying, you know, really, we're not, we're just not getting any, any traction here, you know, and, and I'll give an example of, of how serious they took. So we would run uh, training courses for the police. And we would have uh, basic investigator courses and then we'd build up to, to, you know, complex transnational crime investigation courses. 
one of the things that we would do is get the list of participants so we could check to make sure that they weren't on a list of human rights abusers and that kind of thing. One of the courses we were doing, a basic investigators course, I've been trying to get the, the list of participants for quite a few weeks and a week out, still no list, we should have just cancelled the course, but anyway, pressure to get KPIs and all that kind of stuff. So the decision was made to proceed with the course and, and my counterpart assured me that he would, on the morning of the course, provide me with all the detailed CVs of all the participants. Anyway, so the course starts and um, we've got everybody in the classroom, they they're the most punctual people on earth. They would be there sitting at their desk half an hour before the course would start. Anyway, so we were all gathered there and to break the ice, I would sit down and talk about my family, my life, what I'd done in the police and blah, blah, blah. Then I'd go, go around and ask each participant. I was very pleased because there was probably about 40% female participants, which is really good. First person, a woman, woman, middle-aged woman, 40, 45 there. So I said, oh, can, well, can you uh, tell me a bit about yourself and where, you know, your police service and stuff? And she stands up. She says, I'm a librarian. And I go, oh, I said, um, are you in the, the library at the police training academy? or at And she looked at me like the moron I was. And she goes, no, I'm from the library down the road. I said, oh, so you're not a police officer and of course the Myanmar police officials are all shuffling in their seat very uncomfortably and she said no well, apparently I will be this afternoon they came and grabbed me and 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 said I had to do this course and and they're going to give me a uniform this afternoon and I'll be a policeman and I just want to be a librarian <laughs> anyway and I was like oh okay maybe this is a bit of an aberration but we went round and each one had been press ganged you know completely the opposite of what we're trying to achieve, and another course at the at the end of the course, you know, we, we started to try and train the trainers with some of their central training instructors. And I was so proud. The course had gone really, really well. We'd have scenarios and, we'd, you know, really put a lot of work and, and a lot of funding in it. I had to do, do things by international standards, rule of law, you know, evidence-based investigations and prosecutions. And I had this guy who was the senior investigator trainer at their Central Training Academy. So he'd been shadowing me through the whole course. And, and he seemed, you know, really committed. And I was like, this is going so well. So I had the Australian ambassador and the head of AusAid and things present at the graduation so that they could give the certificates and they could see, you know, how we're going. And I gave a bit of a talk and I said how proud I was to work side by side with you know such a open-minded instructor and things and just wonder if you could just say a few words to the to the class about their future and how they can utilize what they've learned and he gets up and he he says no all the right things are you know Mr David he's he's brings some incredibly good ideas here and the way that they do in other countries and I'm glancing across and, you know, the ambassador's sitting up going, this is good. Head of Ozade, who's a personal friend now, she's sort of, you know, give me the thumbs up. This is perfect, you know. And he goes, but, he said, have you noticed how long it takes to get to finish a case and that compared to how we do it? He said, it's a very, very inefficient way. And I'm, I'm sort of like, uh, you know, because it's being translated. He said, let's face it. You chain them up to a chair 
And then you start to read it. He said, you'll soon find out. They'll confess. And I'm going, I think we need to have a, uh, a break for a morning tea. <laughs> so all the, all, the, all the brownie points I thought I'd got were, were like, yeah, yeah. So it got to, it got to the end of my, my contract and I was having serious ethical concerns. Because, so, you know, if you think you can make a change, you keep going. But if you think that you're just a fig leaf to cover up for a change that's never going to happen, and it was a, it was a very, very well-paid position and, you know, my wife had given up her job in Australia to move over there, we'd done this, and we're just talking about and I said, look, I just don't think I can keep doing this, you know. And I think it was a Thursday. I had to sign my contract on the Monday. It was a Thursday and the Friday I got a um, an email from the UN saying, do you want to go and work in Sri Lanka on war crimes? And I went, Oh yeah. <laughs> so I gave myself the weekend and, and yeah, then I, I, I left and then started working, working over there. I must admit, I'm unaware. Do you mean war crimes as in war with the Tamils? So, yeah. So. Civil war? Civil war. So. Okay. So the, the time that, that I went across there, there'd been a, a, a ceasefire or a truce, which, came about after the uh, Boxing Day tsunami because it was over 100,000 Sri Lankans had been killed in the tsunami and, um, you know, many more homeless. And it was a uh, Norwegian-led truce or ceasefire negotiations, 2004, early 2005. Then in 2005, the Rajapaksa family or took over the, the government. He's a very far-right nationalist and he, his platform was the defeat of the Tamil Tigers. Then a number of attacks started to take place, breaches of the ceasefire, some pretty egregious massacres and killings. And so the war started up again. We had 17 cases that we had to look for. The, the uh, Sri Lankans wouldn't allow it to be called a UN investigation because they were above having the UN come in to, to look at them. So what was created was this project called the International Independent Group of Eminent Persons. So there was a pile of these eminent persons from around the world who came in and were to oversight what they called a presidential commission of inquiry, it, it, exactly the same as one of our Royal, our Royal Commission, but this was into the 17 cases of egregious violations of human rights. I wasn't one of the eminent persons, so each, each eminent person had a, a not-so-eminent person with them who had a certain expertise who, who could advise them. And I had a fantastic man. I was actually, he was an American. He, was, he had been the former Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees and he was um, a former Assistant Secretary of State, um, a guy named Gene Dewey, one of the nicest, most decent men you'd ever find in the world. And we had people from the UN Human Rights Council, like, you know, really heavy hitters, really super, super smart people. But what we didn't realise is that what the Sri Lankan government for years and years and years, whenever they have had a, an issue, they create their equivalent of a Royal Commission. But no one had ever finished them or, or and, and they actually had Royal Commissions into Royal Commissions. And it took six months before, before the commission actually even sat. And, but anyway, we, we, we stretched our mandate dramatically to, to actually start taking, doing investigations because we were supposed to only oversight. And what we found out was that people were being threatened or given a script 
before they went in to give evidence. And the counsel assisting was actually involved in this conspiracy. So he wouldn't ask the most obvious questions that should have been asked to these people about, you know, what things had happened, and they'd have a script. So, you know, all the evidence is being hidden. Anyway, so we started to do um, our own inquiries and um, investigations. And, and what we found out that in a number of the cases, it looked like it was a, the Tamil Tigers had undertaken these egregious crimes. We found that actually the government security forces had killed even their own people so that they could poor and, and in poor people bomb a, a railway station in a, in a really poor part of the the country and blame it on the Tamil Tigers. So this was so that the war could start again. And they also, what was interesting is that three these three Rajapaksa brothers, one was the president, one was the minister for defence, the other one was the finance minister. So they pretty well had everything covered. But they'd started their own company, so any armaments and military equipment had to come in through their company before it went to the, the security forces. So, so it was in their financial interests to have the war ramp up and keep going. Once we started to investigate these things and um, they stupidly allowed us to start asking questions in the Commission of Inquiry. So we'd ask questions that were obvious to anyone that should be asked. And um, So when they realised that you knew, which they must have, there must have been a moment where they realised, oh, shit, they know. Was there a, a change in the way you were treated and the way your sort of life was going on? Well, things got worse than chilly. There was a bit of a system there where, where you'd get the cold shoulder, that you get hints, they publicise things about you, and then they'd kill you. It set up accidents and that kind of thing. There was a number of people that we, we interviewed who, who were really key to some of the most egregious crimes that you could ever, ever imagine that we had to get asylum in, into other countries. And they weren't just Tamils. They were journalists who had tried to expose the truth. They were human rights advocates. So we had to work with different countries in order to, to try and sneak them out of the country and get them asylum and that kind of thing. You know, it's quite a hair-raising process. You know, we've got, we got more than 100 out. But what happened then was that um, they started to publish, because there's a government newspaper, about how we were what they called white tigers, which meant that we were sympathetic to the Tamil Tigers. And and nothing could have been further from the truth. You know, the Tamil Tigers were the first um, group to implement suicide bombing, for example. And, you know, we were uh, as critical of both sides because both sides did some absolutely horrendous stuff. But things came to a, a head when they published on the front page of the newspaper saying that David Savage was a personal friend of one of the senior Tamil Tigers School friends, <laughs> not sure how they worked that one out, that I was sympathetic, that I was pushing for the destruction of the motherland, which I'd go on this. Anyway, so if you'd like to express your dissatisfaction with him being here, this is his address and this is his phone number. So at that stage, I got a call from the uh, US Embassy because as I was working with the, the American, and they said, uh, you're leaving. <laughs> Within a day or so, we were we were out. We all ended up leaving. 
We continued the investigations from outside of Sri Lanka for, for many more years and we wrote the sort of landmark report about when the war continued and, and the destruction of the Tamil Tigers, but more importantly, the carpet bombing and artillery barrages which killed over 40,000 men, women and children who were being held essentially as, as human human shields by the LTT. They didn't want to be there, but they just, they literally, in order to kill the Tamil Tigers, they just killed everyone. Coming up on Australian True Crime, the day that suddenly ended David Savage's career in the Australian Federal Police and also changed his life forever. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. By 2011, the War on Terror by the Coalition of the Willing, announced by President George W. Bush in 2003, had turned into a seemingly endless exercise against an ever-evolving enemy on their own terms all the time. At home, the coalition countries were facing voters who were increasingly sceptical or completely disinterested in the war. It was a money pit without a glorious victory in sight. But in May of that year, there was renewed hope when Osama bin Laden was finally located and killed by American forces. Not long after that, American diplomats met with Taliban contacts for high-level and very secret negotiations. It's not known exactly what those negotiations were about, but less than two years later, President Obama announced an impending withdrawal of combat troops from Afghanistan. In the middle of all that, our friend David Savage received an exciting job offer. To put it into that timeline, it was not long after the Bin Laden operation that David received the call. I'll let him pick up the story. So the preparation, and I'll say preparation in inverted commas because it was really appalling, 
And the excuse was, oh, this is a new role, so you've got to make it your own, you know, that usual rubbish that people say when they have no clue of what you're supposed to do. We were part of this Kevin Rudd-led Australian civilian call. So he was trying to get a seat on the Security Council, so he was trying to replicate the, I guess, the US Peace Corps and all that kind of stuff. So I just happened to be a DFAT employee seconded to the role whilst others came from outside of, of the public service or the Australian public service. The, the two other people, so the three of us went, one of them was very, very experienced and he'd spent five years in Afghanistan, not in Uruzgan, but in other parts. Um, former Australian Army officer, worked for the UN for decades, you know, and, and spoke Pashtun and Sundari. So we fly there. We've been given figures about money and stuff that was being spent there. But as I said, once again, no context. You don't know what that money is able to buy or, or to, to do anything. Where were they at with the budget? As you said, you know, you, you see these numbers, but they're meaningless until you get there and you start to have an understanding of what's happening there. So what, what we understood our role was, was to obviously, you know, with stabilisation advices, bring some stability to the to the district, but also do some um, meaningful work and bring valuable resources to the people there. What we realised, the three of us, we felt like outsiders, both within the civilian community, but then we were the only civilians on military bases. What we, the three of us, came to realise was we were there to essentially buy everyone off so that they could withdraw. So to flood the community with projects and money so they'd feel happy, it's almost like they wouldn't notice that that you're withdrawing. And that wasn't our brief. And we were 10 years, essentially 10 years too late. So people like me should have been working there from the get-go. No matter how good and well-meaning the military are, they're just not trained. That's not their geek to win over people. So I'll give you an example. One of, one of the Dutch had put a project, the main project that at the time, I think it was $20 million, right, to run a road from Tarrant to Chora, where I was. And in the initial plans, there were to be no culverts, that is, pipes underneath the road, because people can put IEDs there, which is the greatest threat. Well, they put in a hundred and something culverts. So a hundred and something places where you can put IEDs that can't be seen. And part of the reason they got away with, the contractors got away with doing that was because people hadn't been going out there and monitoring the road because it's too dangerous. So the, the, these foreign governments are paying local contractors to do all this work? Usually foreign, big development sort of uh, engineering companies, and they will send a couple of adventurous types there to hire the, the local staff and the contractors to, to get it done. But you need the people that are paying it to say, hang on, what are you doing? And one thing I never saw was an amount of, of what my budget was. It was just like, whatever you need. One of my first roles was troubleshooting, you know, well-meaning soldiers from the PRT, the Provincial Reconstruction Team, had no experience in contracting or dealing with people, you know, they're soldiers, um, had 
engaged a guy to, to put three wells in this village. They paid him the money up front. You know, the money you're giving him is the most money he's ever seen in his life. You know, they paid three lots of 5,000 US dollars to drill three wells. So he drilled one well in his backyard and then owned the water. So instead of solving water problems, we'd actually created a problem where one guy monopolised the water for the village and we paid for it, so they hated us. You know, so my first job was to try and negotiate and get two extra wells. And then in the process, you know, we we're like, well, how much does a well cost here? Clearly no one in this town or this province can afford to pay 5,000 US dollars to get a well. Why are we paying it? You know what I mean? And, um, well, the most a well should cost is about $800, right? The worst case I saw, and I won't say who's who um, paid it, but was up to 100,000 US dollars for a tube well because they kept asking for more money because once they'd spent a certain amount, they couldn't back off because they didn't have have, have any to show for the money, but they just didn't take enough notice or care to note that they were being ripped off or they put, or they consciously thought, yeah, this is outright, but we're just giving them money, they'll love us or something. Do you think that like when other countries were in charge of the of the job, they allowed this crazy price gouging gravy train. Absolutely. Look, absolutely. One of the things that I and my colleagues did was try to take a res- obviously a responsible mm. approach to it. But I think that may have been your downfall, mate. <laughs> that, look, I, I've got no doubt that that was yeah. part of the, the, the motivation. I think we just, um, just to be, we have to be really clear about the fact that aid money was ending up with the Taliban. I don't know how much, and we can't say how much, but, I mean, it was, you know, some of it was ending up funding the Taliban. Oh, without a doubt. There's no no doubt at all that when you flood a community with money that the Taliban aren't going to... Some of the people are, are going to be Taliban, but also the Taliban are going to put the squeeze on, on people to get the, the money. They can see what's being built or or constructed and they know money's coming into it. So, yeah, definitely. We had had one guy, which I can't think of his full name, but Brown Eyes was his nom de guerre, a very, very nasty piece of work. And he had refused to engage with us. And there was always this suspicion that he was Taliban, which as it turned out, he he was. And he, uh, as I said, wouldn't engage, but then would try to turn the other tribes and and things against us but me because I was the face of it. One of the problems was one of his sons was working for the project to build the the flood mitigation. It was about a $6 million project to stop the, the snow melt, washing the town and the roads away and things. And there'd been a brilliant negotiation before I arrived where there was a proportional representation from every village. So say it was 10% or whatever. So if you had 100, 100 young men, 10 of them would work on the project. Another village might have 300, but they 30 worked. And, and it was fairly done to spread the money. And every tribal leader had signed off on it, all happy. And then early 2012, so maybe eight, eight weeks before I was blown up, he started agitating 
he needed more labourers working on this project. And his son working in the project was clearly up to no good trying to make that happen. Because what happens if if you've got 20 labourers or 50 labourers, say they're getting $10 a day, he's going to take eight of that. And so the more labourers from his village, the more money he gets, which is what his motivation is. So my response to him was, it's not up to me to make the decision because the money's not coming from, you're actually going to be taking money from other tribes. Mm. So if the other tribes agree, yeah, sure, but I'm not going to make that decision. And he kept wanting to come and meet me privately then after having not refused to meet me for six months, whatever. He wanted to meet me on the side. And I said, well, no, we've got to be transparent and we'll meet with the governor and we'll meet with the other tribes so that they can see what you're proposing. Well, of course, he he didn't want to do that, refused to, to do that. So he kept through his son would come and demand. And I mean, literally, really forcefully demand that I would go then and now to to meet him and things. And one of the problems, A, was about, obviously, I can't be seen to be kowtowing to a, to one of the local strongmen, uh, but also what was he setting me up to be, yeah. you know, ambushed or blown up or, or whatever. Because the previous governor was assassinated, right? So, I mean. And, you know, three police chiefs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was a common thing and, and a very, very dangerous area. So, you know, I I had got into not an argument but quite a strong discussion with the son and just saying, I'm not going to meet your father, I'm not going to do that. And so he then tried to turn it that I was against his father and, of course, it made, made him look, I guess, weak in his, because he couldn't convince me or, or force me to to bend to his, his will. Yeah, so I, I knew... I hadn't made any friends, <laughs> any friends there. Uh, but, I mean, it was surely to your advantage with all the other leaders. Yes, abso- absolutely. Everybody else was quite fearful of this guy and I got messages or people would come to the thing and say, thank you because, um, you know, you'd, you'd stood up to, to this guy. Mm. So that's why you were such a target. You, I mean, you're costing this guy money and your presence there is to his mind, only going to cost him more and more money. Exactly. And then it was very soon after that that what they call night leaders started to appear. You're in a, in a district where literally 5% are literate. Mm. And, you know, obviously we were putting schools in to change that. But the more people that could read and write that were literate, the less people that could be manipulated. Yeah. So... You know, the Taliban and other people weren't in favour of that. So um, as you can see now with the Taliban banning women from education things. Well, that's it. I mean, the first thing they don't want is people being able to read the Koran, for one thing. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll tell you what's in it. Don't worry. We'll tell you what's, yeah, what it says. That's exactly what they do. So what they would do is put these night letters at the, the small mosques, village mosques, and the Malik, who is like the lay preacher, who gets the job because he can read and write, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he'd tell what was people exactly like you said, what, what's in the Quran, and, you know, if it's a good area, he'd tell the truth. If it's a bad area, he'd tell what the Taliban wanted him to say. But they'd post these night letters, and they're called night letters because they'd be put out during the middle of the night and, you know, like nailed to the little mosque, and then the Malik would read it and then inform the, the people, and they were always threats about 
so that, you know that's why they'd be put out during the night because um, the Taliban had put them out there all. So I had a, a number of night leaders came out in the two or three weeks before I was attacked and ambushed. It was saying um, if you uh, speak to or work with the the Ozaid person, you'll suffer the consequences. Um, we're going to um, you know, do things against him because he's against us and, you know, these sort of things. I mean, you knew you were in danger from the moment you arrived. Did you take that extra seriously? What did you think? You obviously didn't think you were going to be blown up or you really in your heart of hearts or you'd have left. I came back from leave, I think, in January. My mid, you had a midterm break or whatever you call it. And during that, I just extended don't know what I was thinking. Oh my god! <laughs> to um, I'd asked to ex- been asked to extend to I think it was the end of October or November. I was supposed to leave in the end of April was my initial contract. And I actually, you know, I liked the work. I I, I loved the challenge. And of course, going back to DFAT, I was going to be sitting behind a computer, you know. So that wasn't really something that thrilled me to tears, you know. And look, so I've got, at the time, my children were, were grown up. They weren't um, weren't kids. And just before I left, and I've never had it before, but I just had this really bad sense of foreboding. My son must have detected it. He said, you don't have to go back, Dad. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, I can't, I can't remember the exact words, but I s- said to him, you know, if something happens, you know, do X, Y, and Z, you know. And, and I did have this, and I couldn't put my finger on it. So, so went back and I didn't, you know, I didn't dwell on it or didn't not go out or anything because, you know, we're still going out, you know, four or five and sometimes five or six days a week out, but they call outside the wires so or outside the base and into the community because you couldn't do much if you don't, meet people, you know. But we had a new Australian contingent at the base and you're always a bit uneasy until you, you know, you know you know them and trace them. And, and they, they were great. There was no absolutely no issue with the Australians at all. They were fantastic. But the new US security detachment, the US before were National Guard and, and the, there was some, you know, really well-meaning guys that I have no doubt would never have let anything happen to me, like unless they were killed, you know what I mean? They really mm. were dedicated to their task. The new group, I, I guess the best way to describe them was they were cowboys. They thought they knew everything. And the outgoing group tried to, you know, brief them and things, and they just wouldn't listen. They knew, yeah, you know, the whole, yeah, 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 yeah. The other problem we had is we hadn't been able to do a number of what they call handover patrols because there'd been massive sandstorms, mm. so which meant that the um, medivac helicopters gun- and gunships and that couldn't fly, so no one was allowed outside the, the wire during this period. Mm. So about mid-March, I think it was, I, I was tasked to arrange a visit to Chora at the base by a really, really high-level Australian official. So so we had Director General of AusAid, so the very head of AusAid was coming. 
Paul Simon, who's just finished up as the head of ACES, I knew Paul from East Timor quite well, but he was the head of um, DIO, the uh, Defence Intelligence Organisation, Deputy Commissioner from the AFP, you know, senior generals were coming. But, of course, we couldn't let the Afghan people know. So what we've got to do is we've got to, well, they call scope out how, how we can do it without letting anyone become suspicious about what we're doing. Now, I, I was tasked um, with organising a, a 100% what they call dismounted on, on foot, not in, in vehicles, So, which means they'd fly into uh, the LZ at the base and then we'd go on foot to the district headquarters and visit all these things. So I went and did, did a, a recce on this with both the Australians at the base, because I think they were going to take major role of the perimeter security, but special forces were coming in mm. for each of those people. To Funnily enough, they weren't going to let US National Guard protect them. <laughs> <laughs> and I should add that we had to make sure that all of the district officials were actually going to be at the office that day because there's no point people coming from Australia, essentially, to meet these people if that was a day they were going to be inspecting something or they decided to have a day off or whatever. So I had to come up with a with a fake reason that everyone had to come, oh, had to be at the office. But you had to keep it so secret that these guys were coming to town that you couldn't even tell them. No, no. So ah. on the, um, I've got a feeling it was like 8 o'clock we were going to head off. So we got to um, go down, grab a brew and whatever for breakfast, then you had to line up at a set time, I think it was probably 7.30, where they checked your equipment before what they call you stepped out. So we do that and then they radio, seek permission to leave. We're just about to, literally just about to step off and this guy says, can I come too? They had a thing where you had to be on the tab or something. You had to submit the names the night before of who was going So to go to Tarrant to approve them. So it was like, oh, your name's not on the, the list or the tab or whatever. So instead of coming back inside and doing starting all over again, we wait in full view of the town whilst permission for this guy to come. So there's 16 plus me, 17 and him, 19 of us sitting, standing there, but it took so long we eventually sat down. It should never have been allowed to happen. This chap, Brad, was a, was a spook, which I, I had no idea. By which you mean, I mean CIA or something like that? But in in, Ameri in military uniform. Yeah, but that's why it was allowed to happen. That's why. Yeah, yeah. of course. Okay. So so we've all waited for this guy and then we head off. Tim Diggs, one of the guys, 100% of the time had a helmet cam video on. Roger. Right, yeah, we're going to go uh, through the bazaar, through the market. <laughs> I, now looking, I've looked at the video. I, I couldn't, I couldn't remember the trip there at all, but I've, I've looked at the helmet cam video, and you can tell, just by the atmosphere in the, in the town, that people are uneasy. Yeah. Anyway, so it starts off, we're, we're outside the office, just about putting our gear on, and some locals come up and ask for, whether we can meet them and whether we can give them certain things. Clearly, what they're doing is delaying us. Of course, yep. But everyone's oblivious, you know, and I'm trying, and you can see I'm trying to say, yep, okay, yep, yep, come and, you know, 
we got to go. And mm. but we head off, putting our gear on. There's, it's chatter about, oh, well, let's go and get some bread on the way back. Let's go to the market and do do this. And we would never walk back on the main road because there's only one way, where place you're going, and that's back to the base. You know, whilst if you're cutting through back alleys, are you going somewhere else? You can't be set up. One of the guys who's my close protection, as soon as we get outside the second last gate, but before we go out through the wire, he's wandered off and left me. He's already gone. And I'm, you know, talking to to, um, some of the soldiers, and he yells back nonchalantly to another one and says, oh, you've got Dave. Mm. You know, like as in, oh, even though that my soul raison d'etre is to look after him, I'm going to go for a wander, Mm. which is exactly what he did. So the guy that is uh, tasked to make sure he wanders off as well. So we go into the the main town where there's people around and stuff, and um, I'm standing there looking around, and I'm completely by myself. They've wandered off. They're into shops. When they've gone into the bakery to get, you know, the Afghan flatbread, they're told that there's none there. So instead of going, okay, and we go, they go, oh, we'll wait. So we'll all stand still in the middle of town. So the Taliban must have been going, how good's this? These guys are helping, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, and then, and I don't pick this up because I don't have a radio, but I get it off the um, helmet cam video. One of the guys says to two young soldiers, he said, oh, look at that guy. He's got orange staining on his hands. The two guys go, oh, okay. And he said, do you know what that is? And, he's, and they go, no. And he says, oh, it, it shows that he's just been mixing HME. And they go, what's HME? And he goes, oh, it's homemade explosives. Hey, 3-7, you got a guy coming your way with these orange hands. hands are usually a sign of HME production. Now, they've seen a guy that they identify who's just been mixing homemade explosives because he's got orange on his hand, and no one does anything. And then eventually, after all this wait, we start walking, but the whole patrol spreads out over, I think, 70 metres, mm. right, instead of being – it's supposed to be a bubble around me so that no one can get near me. Mm. That's why they're there, to protect me. So the guy, which I think they call it Point, this guy at the very front, is ahead and he says, oh, all the, the workers on the uh, the project are all leaving. They've got a lot of tools here, nobody working. Now, anyone knows anything is as soon as the locals are le- leaving an area, it's because there's an attack about to happen. And they've left all their tools. Now, the t- their tools are the most valuable thing that on earth. You don't lose your t- leave your tools behind unless you, you're in a hurry. This Brad comes up to me and says, look at that. This is really suspicious. There's a guy sitting on the side of, of the road with two kids drinking tea, right? And he goes, that's really suspicious. Can you take a photo, right? And I said, oh, before we take photos, we always just ask permission. You know, he's me. Yeah. <laughs> Can we just ask permission of the spotter if he doesn't mind? Anyway, the guy said yes. So I pulled my camera up, but when I went to take it, he pulls his shirt and covers his face. Ah. But in the photo, you can see he's got a radio next to him. No, why? But then I had to take one last 
video and a motorbike had come and stopped the patrol. But interestingly, the patrol didn't care about anyone walking through or driving through, but the motorbike came and stopped themselves because he, he was making them the patrol stops. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because they then had to had to check in. So completely out in the open, I'm there filming the, the, the ditch, and Brad says to me because we're waiting, he says, oh, wow, what type of trees are they? Because it's blooming, you know, and they're apricot trees. And I, and I said, oh, yeah, I said the apricots, they're really beautiful. So I take a, a bit of two seconds of video, and I, I had my pouch for my um, camera on my um, ballistic vest. So I've just stopped videoing, opened up a pouch, and I've got my arm up, luckily, and I'm putting the camera into the pouch. And Brad's next to me, and he turned, and the, the face of horror, it's funny, I, I can still hear the, the massive crack of the blast. Oh, shit, son. You know, I was blown 10 metres. He was blown into the ditch about eight or nine metres away. Um, you know, I was blown up apparently and then landed flat on my back. I was unconscious for a, a few minutes. Get the cover, Interestingly, the two guys who were my designated protection didn't get a scratch because they were... They reckon the closest one was about 100 metres away. Where the f*** did that come from? In the suicide bomber. Give me another tourniquet. Coming. Give me another tourniquet. On its way. Right here. And one of them was the one with the helmet came in. He, not for months later, that I found out that he watched the bomber dressed all in white walking for 37 and a half seconds towards me through he weaves through my security thing. No one says anything to him. And then as he hits the road, you can see on the helmet clam him hitting the road and I'm in blue on the other side of the road and then he just runs straight at me. But the thing that saved saved my life was that he tripped just before. And they they haven't told me how, he, how it was detonated, whether he, he detonated or it was remote detonated, but a lot of the blast hit the ground and then came up into us. And look, I think the only thing that saved my sanity is that I didn't see it happen. Yeah, and of course. Living every day knowing that a little boy was murdered to try and murder yeah. me is a, is a really, yeah. really difficult thing to live with. The medic was also critically wounded, and you see him come over to assist me, and his femoral artery was cut, he was bleeding to death, and, and I, I, I was unaware, but a patrol of Navy SEALs had stopped into our base and to lay up for a day. They were in their sh shorts and T-shirts in the, in, the, in the gym, and they just grabbed their guns and ran straight out. They didn't. Thank God. And a, a group of Australians, they were just lining up for lunch, and they just came straight out. Now, if, if that hadn't happened, there's no doubt that... Certainly I and the medic would have bled to death.
you know, I was in surgery in 52 minutes, or, you know, which... That's amazing. In Tarrant though? In Tarrant So, uh, So during this, I still don't know what's happened to me because I thought I'd stood on a, um, a landmine. And I was um, laying in, in, in the bed with all my, um, all my limbs literally in casts or splintered or whatever. And a doctor, an American doctor, came in and... Um, Without any any warning, he he started telling me about what what I had to be careful of, and he and he was saying how when suicide bombs they in the bombs they often put feces and things like that, so that if it doesn't kill you, you'll get an infection. The kids that they use have often been sexually assaulted, so quite often they've got HIV. And going going through this and saying so, you won't be able to hug, kiss, or do anything to any of your family until you're cleared. You know, not I don't even, at this stage I didn't even know I'd been blown up by a suicide bomber. You know, a child. Then he left. Like it was like come bomb, 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 and then he's gone. It's a, it's a difficult thing to carry, knowing that a that a a twelve year old illiterate farm boy or whatever. Just, just can't have that, you know, hate or the planning or whatever. You know, they, they literally, he was murdered to murder me is a really, you know, it's a heavy thing to carry. So Brad, my body protected him uh, a, a lot, but he, he sadly had, had one of his buttocks blown off. Oh. Um, he had quite a bad brain injuries like like I did from the concussion from the blast. From the blast, it's like having, you know, that shaken baby syndrome. Yeah. So, you know, you get the blast, moves your head one way, but then when you come down and bang, moves another way. And um, Yeah, it just smashes your brain yeah. inside your skull, doesn't yeah. it? Rattles yeah. it. While, while we're on the injuries, though, how are you now? Like, let's, let's get to the positives. I mean, your recovery, I know, is ongoing, but from where you were, which was... You were paraplegic at its worst, right? Yeah. So I, in the first sort of 24 hours, I died twice. I was resuscitated twice. So that is pretty remarkable. I'm still here. I, I had learned to walk. I've got a ball bearing in my spine, um, plus all the nerves to my legs had been been cut and I had massive um, nerve surgery to reconnect and peer back and graft nerves. So I'd learned to walk maybe 12 months after. But then you had a setback, didn't you? Did the ball bearing move yeah, or so, something? Yeah, so my, my neurosurgeon, I think, neurologist or neurosurgeon had said, if you feel any tingling in your right leg or numbness, just give us a call and we'll get you up here and check you, check you out, you know. Well, I it was before Easter, either 2014 or 15, so... I'd rather been walking for a year or two years. I can't remember. And I'd started to feel some tingling in my right leg. So I went, no, oh, no, it's nothing. And it sort of kept going. And then on the Tuesday, so the Tuesday before Good Friday, I was in the kitchen and my wife said, I think you're dragging your right leg. And I said, oh, yeah, it just feels a bit tingly, a bit numb. Anyway, she went, well, why didn't you, you know, usual, why didn't you tell me? So the next morning we went to my doctor just down the road and she rang my surgeon and they said get up here straight like straight away 
So we, we flew to Sydney and then she put me straight into St Vincent's Hospital where I was and then all of these um, experts all came, came around. But they can't do MRIs because I'm full of metal, but they're trying to do these nerve conduction things, sticking big needles into my leg to sending electric charges down. But by this time, I can't feel anything. After Easter, so the day after Easter Monday, my right leg was completely paralysed. I was in, in hospital for a month, I think, or in Sydney before coming back to hospital in Canberra. But they looked at it and, and they came to the conclusion that they could not move, which is the same one that they had after I was wounded, that they couldn't take the ball bearing out because of the fear that I'd become both legs paralysed and then become incontinent and do all that kind of stuff. But they had a, there was a tiny flicker and they said that whilst there was a flicker, there's a hope. So I was just spent the next five or so years just working physio every week, keeping my legs in good shape in case it returned. And then about two years ago, I was told that there's, it was a new brace. Is this the German, the German robotic? Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, um, that they think my injury would be conducive to, to this working. Mm. But I had to, so I spent a whole year working to strengthen the muscles that were needed to operate the Otterbock brace. The continual testing me just to say, yes, you've, have you done enough? No, keep going. And then finally they said, yes, we think you can do it. So the guy, <laughs> the guy comes and they're very, you know, they're preparing me for it. And I was only the, sixth or seventh person in Australia that had trialled this, so it's very new. And the guy says, um, this is very black and white. When we strap it on, if you are activating it, you'll hear a beep and it works. No beep, it doesn't work, and it's not never will work for you. So anyway, so we get there and there's all of these physios from far and wide, you know, watching to come. You know, of course, my family are there and... So we strap it on a parallel bars, you know, and um, says, okay, go. And so I'm moving and I, and I get to the end, no beep. Oh. And it, it, you can see everyone's face is just like mm. this. And he goes, oh, come, come back, turn around. So help me and I come, no beep. So I sit down and I'm just like, fuck, you know. Anyway, and there he goes. I forgot to put the sound on. <laughs> and everyone just goes, what? <laughs> anyway, so he says, get up and do it. Well, then he says, beep. Oh, beep. wow. So, you know, the other day I walked three kilometres around Lake Burley Griffin. So, like, I'm, oh I'm trying, trying to, to extend. It, it's life-changing. That's all I can say. It's been the most amazing Isn't that- thing ever. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer.
If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.